Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Homeostasis is defined as the metabolic equilibrium actively maintained by several complex biological mechanisms that operate via the autonomic nervous system to offset disrupting changes. These biological mechanisms are complex, and they are very real. Introducing change to this system can and undoubtedly will cause some sense of withdrawal. Many foods, drinks, and substances can trigger this state of change. If a person that drinks large amounts of coffee suddenly stops drinking that coffee, these mechanisms go through their various changes and small-scale withdrawals will be felt. Withdrawal from substance abuse is also very real, in the sense that long-term use of a particular drug will bring about temporary bodily discomfort that resembles illness when that drug is withdrawn from the body. But is this a valid excuse to continue a life of addiction? Our topic today withdrawal as a tool of manipulation. Withdrawal symptoms in the world of drug abuse vary according to multiple factors. For instance, when speaking in terms of alcohol versus opiates, withdrawal from long-term alcohol use could be fatal, while long-term opiate use is just uncomfortable. Researchers have found interesting factors related to withdrawal intensity, self-administration being a major one. The more the person suffering from withdrawals is able to self-administer their substance of choice, the withdrawal period tends to be elevated in intensity. Now that's very interesting. The more I'm able to give myself the drug that I want, the harder it is for me to get myself off the drug that I apparently want. Though elevation in intensity should not be conflated with elevation of time in withdrawal. Those are two very different things. The amount of time to come off an opiate, for instance, is still very short. Now, the intensity during that short period of time may increase and may be more difficult depending upon the self-administration of the drug of choice. This data further lends to the idea that choice and personal responsibility are major factors in the establishment of the addiction in the first place. It kind of further knocks down the idea of this being a disease. 
The person in question gave themselves over to their unbridled desire for drug use. As a result, the withdrawals may reach a heightened level of intensity. But it's important to note here, particularly in the case of opiate abuse, the inevitable period of withdrawal is often used as a tool for manipulation. And the way they act during this period may better be recognized if you just take a moment and think about a toddler. Many of the troubles related to drug addiction are the outworkings of an overall package. A package that begins and ends with the individual. Now, I know you, you might be thinking, well, that was really deep. But if it's so simple and it seems so clear and it seems so obvious, it's not being practiced or it's not being applied to the practice of rehabilitation across the entire country. They remove the individual. They remove the responsibility of the person. Heroin is an inanimate object. It has no life. It has no mind. It has no will. It's totally subject to a respective owner. Yet the person in possession of the heroin acts as though the drug forced itself upon them. I recall seeing a news clip of a kidnapped teenage girl somehow freeing herself from her captor. She ran into the streets screaming, thereby alerting the neighbors and arousing help. This is how the drug addict acts only when they get caught, screaming to the officer how happy they are to see them. Who knows where this bag of heroin could have taken them had the police not appeared. <laughs> they act as though they are being held captive. They act as though this bag of heroin took them. They didn't go purchase the bag of heroin. They are not in possession of the heroin. The heroin is in possession of them. It just takes them and it forces them to go places and forces them to do things that they would not ordinarily do, but because they are held hostage by this drug, well, that's why they did it. That's, that's why they need help. That's why they need someone to intervene. They need a hero to come in and save the day, except that they don't want to be saved. They don't want someone to come in and help them break free from the bondage they're in to their drug that they chose. They prefer to remain in that situation. Now, these attitudes are self-serving and withdrawals have become an extension of such mentalities. Blinded self-interest serve to cloud the realities of addiction. And allow me to suggest this self-interest is probably a better word for what these people are involved in. Addiction is not the proper word. Addiction, according to its definition, notes someone that is devoted to something. Self-interest, selfishness, self-pleasure is probably more along the lines of the lifestyle these people are actually engaged in. To become an addict requires great perseverance. To maintain that addiction takes an equal amount of effort. Therefore, the childish manipulative use of withdrawals becomes an extension of said perseverance. The addict then spends life engaged in two matters self-exoneration from responsibility and obtaining their next fix. It's not my fault. I have a disease. And by the way, where can I go buy some more stuff to help extend my so-called disease? <laughs> it's madness. And somehow they've convinced the world to go along with it. The drug is sought by the person. The drug is prepared by that person. The drug is consumed by that person. Addiction is a chosen lifestyle not an uncontrollable gravitational pull. 
They just choose to stay where they are. They choose life at the bottom. They choose a life of addiction. In this game of manipulation, opiate withdrawals are treated as the most horrific and death-defying act one could enter into. As such, they are simply trapped in this life. Heroin has kidnapped them, and they are held captive under the threat of withdrawal. This idea regarding withdrawal is allowed to linger and is used as a tool of exploitation by addicts content with their chosen lifestyle. They want to be there. They want to be involved in these things. These are choices they've made. No one forced it upon them. The drug didn't do it to them. They don't have a disease. They made an open and active decision to continually and repeatedly pursue this lifestyle, and then it consumes them. Their their choices led to a life of consumption. It's important to understand that difference. The drug didn't consume them because it was inevitable or because they have a disease or because it was uncontrollable. They chose to give themselves over to consumption. It's pretty well understood that a life of addiction is destructive. You'd have a difficult time finding someone that doesn't understand something so basic. Yet they chose anyway to continue down that road and to continue down that path. Withdrawal symptoms do not provide justification for remaining in a life of addiction. They are no excuse. The perception regarding withdrawals has become detached from reality. Now, along with that, let me explain a minor difference here between your typical standard drug addiction, such as opiates, and that of alcohol addiction. There is a key factor, a key note here that, that I need to mention and need to bring out. Delirium tremens is a complication that results from withdrawal from alcohol. It is very serious. It has been known to cause death, and anyone that desires to stop alcohol abuse will need to consult a credible doctor for assistance. Yet opiates are the most common drug abused in America, and withdrawal from opiates is not life-threatening. It's just uncomfortable. But you need to tough it up and get over it. If you can live life in the streets and you can deal with and put up with the horrendous things that you encounter there, you can deal with opiate withdrawal. Alcohol withdrawals, whole different matter. You need to see a doctor. You need to get some help. Delirium tremens, convulsions. There are a number of medical issues that could come about from withdrawal from long-term alcohol use. And you need to be careful with alcohol abuse. Now, Hollywood does much disservice to our country in many ways. One of which is scenes of hyperbole in relation to certain aspects of life. The dramatization of drug use and withdrawal lends visual credibility to the manipulations of the addict. Society watched such behavior in a movie. Surely it must be true. It then becomes the job of the addict to put on a top-rated Emmy award-winning performance in order to maintain their chosen lifestyle, and they do it all the time. And they know where to place the emphasis. They know how to put on this act. The reality is, general opiate withdrawal lasts a few days or less, and at its worst may present flu-like symptoms. That's it. Now, I do want to make a quick note here. You do have to distinguish withdrawals from the deeply engraved habit that is the result of continual and repeated use. Once you have established this as a habit in your life, it's going to be difficult to break that habit. It's hard to alter deeply engraved habits in our life. But withdrawal and habits are two very different things. They often get conflated. So once you go through the withdrawals, and the drug is out of your system, 
You've got to find something to keep you active and to keep you busy and to keep you focused on something productive, preferably under proper supervision and someone that can help you get through this period of removing yourself from that lifestyle. But remaining productive and active replaces the habits you once had with something healthy and something helpful. If you don't make that exchange, if you just stop using drugs and then sit around and do nothing, you're going to go right back to it. You haven't replaced that bad habit. But the withdrawal period itself lasts just a few days. You might feel like you have a cold. At worst, you may feel like you have the flu. You might shake a little bit. You might have some sweats. You might. It's going to be an uncomfortable period. It's not going to be fun, but you should not have gotten yourself there in the first place. You could help yourself now by never getting involved. But once you're involved, now you're just going to have to face up to it and own up to the fact that you've got to go through this. And the weeping, the wailing, and the gnashing of teeth is merely part of the show. And the idea is to present their terrible suffering as more than man can bear in the hopes that the authorities or whoever it is that's helping them through this will save them by providing more opiates. And in today's treatment facilities, opiates will be prescribed in response to the addict's show. Why that is, your guess is as good as mine. I have an opinion. I, I have formulated some, some concepts that I believe are credible, but ultimately doctors involved in rehabilitation have been taught to respond in a certain way. And they're trying to respond the way that they've been taught. And because the psychological aspects of rehabilitation are based upon the results of asking addicts questions, not on the results of objective data through medical studies... An entire approach to addiction has been formed around the responses of people that intend to manipulate you. <laughs> the greatest of melodramatic performances are put on by the opiate addicts. These are the individuals seen camping on your city streets. Their face is eaten with guile. Not one word that proceeds from their lips should be taken at face value. Manipulation is paramount. All activity, even basic conversation, serves the purpose of obtaining their next fix. You think they're just being nice or you think they're just pouring their heart out to you and telling you what's going on. They're trying to manipulate you and tug on your heart in such a way that you'll feel sorry for them and provide for them in some way. That's their that's their intent. Now, on the other hand, the character of men and women that abuse alcohol are distinctly different. Withdrawal from alcohol will cause death or other serious complications, but the alcoholic will rarely complain. The background and character of the two groups is very different. Alcoholics are often functional. That is until the poison they consume forces such functionality to cease. It's two different worlds and the two rarely meet in the middle. Often people that abuse drugs don't use alcohol and people that abuse alcohol rarely use drugs. There is some bleed over here and there, but for the most part, that is generally true. Now it's unfortunate, but most of what addicts say about anything, but more importantly about themselves is not true. They are masters at preying on human emotion. Their intent is to use the right amount of pressure and intentionally confusing terminology to place their target in an uncomfortable position. They often use questions based in logical fallacy and emotional pressure to their benefit. The intent is to confuse ideas and conflate them to make themselves appear to be poor victims of sudden and unfortunate situations. Allow me to give you an illustration of this type of question and then see if you can catch the manipulative intent of the question. 
My wife and I were once invited to a friend's house for dinner. The family we were visiting have three beautiful boys, and the oldest is around eight years old. He had a very special cup for which he expected to drink each night for dinner. That is his cup. He doesn't share it. Other people don't ask for it. It belongs to him. He loves that cup. As I noticed his attachment to the cup, I began to use it as a means of teasing him. And I wanted to put a little pressure on him and see how he would respond. I asked if I could use the cup that night for dinner. Smiling and without hesitation, he said no. (laughs) As the dinner table was set, he was playing with his toys off to the side, though he was watching that cup. I reached over and slid the cup over to my seat in front of me. I then presented the young boy with a manipulative fallacy meant to place him in a hard spot. I said to him, I am going to use this cup and you don't mind because you're such a nice guy, right? Looking at me with a smile, he didn't know what to say. (laughs) If he answers yes, he is saying he is a nice guy and yes, I can use his coveted cup. If he says no, he is saying no, he is not a nice guy. And no, I cannot use his cup. After a long silence, I relieved him by laughing and I gave him his cup. (laughs) But he just stood looking. He didn't know which way to go. He didn't know which direction to turn. He didn't know how to answer the question because the question is meant to be confusing. And the question is meant to play on his emotions. Do I want to seem like I'm not a nice guy? No. But do I want him to use my cup? No. (laughs) Am I a nice guy? I think so. I believe so. But do I want to share my cup? No. (laughs) Now imagine being approached by an addict in the streets. Try and think of the types of things they say to you. A popular one is, my car broke down a few miles back. My daughter is in the car waiting for me. I just need a little money for gas and food. Now, of course, the reality is there is no car. There is no daughter. There is no need for gas. And once an addict has abandoned their home and family, they have often abandoned food as well. The purpose of providing you this scenario is for the addict to place their target in a high pressure situation. If the target says no, in fact, they have become a horrible person. They refuse to help the poor little girl waiting for daddy back in the car. But if the target says yes... (laughs) They have just further funded illegal drug sales and consented to this person's addiction. They place you in this difficult situation in the hopes that you'll crack under the pressure and give them the money. And many people do. The average person feeling a sense of compassion and unable to withstand the immediate pressure they have been placed under will hand the money over to the addict. Their intent by giving the money over is to help the poor little girl who is stranded. But what has actually happened is the addict received enough money to go get their next fix, at least a small one, depending on the amount of money given to them, or they're one step closer in that direction, whatever the case may be. Pressure, manipulation, the play on emotions, it's all part of their game. And further proof of the existence of the diligence of the drug addict to get their drug of choice. That takes a lot of work. How many no's do they get before they finally get somebody willing to say yes? And if you'll watch, next time, a, next time a homeless drug addict approaches you and asks for money and gives you their sad story, say no, but then go off somewhere to the side and just watch them. 
and see where they go. See how many people they approach. Try and see how many people give them the money they want. Every aspect of the addict's life becomes a game of intentional manipulation. The world of people and doctors are their pawns, and they're just playing their game. Now, repeated studies have shown in an unbelievably clear manner, there are no correlations between the subjective dramatic show of withdrawal with objective measures during the withdrawal period. The emotional outbursts, the screaming, the crying, all that, all that's going on, the show the addict is putting on, none of that can be objectively measured. So then the doctor is placed in this same situation that the person out on the street was placed in. Now the doctor can say, no, go home. I'm not going to administer more drugs to a drug addict, which would seem sensible. Instead, the doctor is liable and the doctor could be sued and the doctor is placed in a difficult situation. So whether the doctor knows this is wrong or not, which I'm convinced looking at a lot of the literature that's available, many of them just don't formulate an opinion. They just ask the addict a question. The addict responds with a complete lie and the doctor prescribes more medication or rehabilitation in response to what the person said. It was all manipulation. Addicts cannot be dealt with in measure of their own subjective explanation to the distress they claim to feel. It's all self-serving. Doing so would create a system in which the addict would scream and cry in agony. Then the agony would be promptly relieved by administration of an opiate similar to that which he would buy on the streets. This would be incomprehensible and counterproductive. I can prove that to you. Look at the world of addiction today. This is exactly what is happening. This is exactly how things are done. This is what we call rehabilitation. The next time you encounter a recovering drug addict, ask them, how long have you been clean? And they'll tell you, you know, three months, four months, six months, whatever the case may be. Good. Praise the Lord. That's a good thing. But then ask them, are you going to a methadone clinic? Are you taking a prescribed synthetic version of the drug that you were taking on the streets? And unfortunately, the majority of the time, the answer is going to be yes, which means the person is not drug free. They are simply taking a prescribed version of the drug that they would go and get on the streets. So the unfortunate reality is withdrawal from opiates is petty at best and flu-like at worst. Of course, no one wants to deal with flu-like symptoms, but I would suggest these could be avoided altogether by simply choosing not to use drugs. Some 70,000 people died from fentanyl overdose alone in 2017. You would be hard-pressed to find credible data of death due to opiate withdrawal. Clearly, continued use of drugs is far more serious than battling the trivial symptoms of withdrawal and allowing such manipulations to continue is highly irresponsible. Now, Proverbs 13 verses 14 through 16 says, The law of the wise is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. Good understanding giveth favor, but the way of transgressors is hard. Every prudent man dealeth with knowledge but a fool layeth open his folly. Have you considered the hardness of your life? Could it be that choices you made got you there? 
How is it always someone else's fault? How is it you always have something else to blame for the negative and the difficult situations you find yourself in? How much closer to help has removing responsibility gotten you? The way of transgressors is hard. That is, you have chosen a lifestyle that is in direct violation to that which is righteous, and the further down that road you travel, the harder your life gets. How long will you continue to stay off track? Why would you knowingly head in the wrong direction? Jeremiah 2.19 says, Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. The person to blame for your situation is the person that goes out daily and buys the drugs you use. You can also blame the person that consumes the drug you use. And you can blame the person that thrives off the temporary enjoyment of that drug. The person to blame is self. Now, why say those things? And why point that out? That seems mean. It seems harsh. Why point the finger at someone? Why be so judgmental? Because accepting personal ownership and responsibility is the starting point to correction. As long as it's someone else's fault, it will be up to someone else to fix your problem. God said your own wickedness will correct you. Your own bad choices have consequences. And then we can compound that by multiple bad choices and repeated bad choices. And then the choice to continue to stay there and to continue to make those choices. Those choices are going to come with correction. You may not take the correction, but you're going to feel the correction. Your own backslidings will reprove you. The further away from God you move, the darker your life gets, the harder your life gets. You want God's help. You want God's favor. That means moving closer to God, but God walks in light and holiness and righteousness. In order to live the life of an addict, it requires you to go out into the darkness. And men love darkness because their deeds are evil. And if you want to stay out there, you can stay there. As a matter of fact, overwhelmingly, addicts are staying there. They had a choice to make and they, they are choosing to stay right where they are. But you don't have to. You can come to the light. You can take responsibility for the choices you've made up to this point, and we can start making some new choices. We can start making some changes. You can start going in a different direction. You can put your life back together. Now, I, I can only say this to those of you that truly desire help. If you don't want help, then you're arguing with everything I'm saying right now. <laughs> and I can't even hear you. There are real ways out of this. If you're ready to put the drugs away, if you're ready to stop pretending withdrawal is a hindrance, if you're ready to take personal responsibility for your situation, I can get you where you need to be. It all starts with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to understand how that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. 
and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He did that for you. He suffered in your place. He died in your place. His love for you was so deep, he decided to give his own life and accept your punishment in your place so that you don't have to. And the word of God promises, if you will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, placing your faith and your trust in his death, his burial and his resurrection, he'll save your soul. Your sins will be forgiven. Your soul will be saved. The Holy Spirit of God will move into your body and you'll have access to a power and an ability that you will never truly, really understand. (laughs) But it's there for you. That is the starting point. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Then, that's not the ending point. Remember, that's the starting point. Then you will need someone to teach you the word of God in a truthful and practical manner so as to rebuild your life on a proper foundation. Right now, you're on shaky ground. Roaming in the darkness on shaky ground, not a good idea. You could come onto solid ground and live life under the light of the word of God. Would you allow me to help you? I'll place some helpful links in the description below. Please contact me with questions. I'd be happy to do what I can. Thank you for listening and God bless. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.